Hi, welcome to Offsiders. I'm Ian. And I'm Encore. Today we sit down with Dr. Jeffrey Gavornik to talk about his time at Boeing working on the International Space Station and his transition into studying the brain at MIT. Oh, and also a recipe for some mean Austin chili. I was going through your lab website and like the first thing that your lab website has is is the Gavornik lab. But then it says, trying to understand what the brain is doing up there (laughs) as the as the as the key purpose statement. So uh, I'd love for you to give some some context about like what your lab broadly aims to do and how that fits into what modern neuroscience is today. Yeah, sure. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the website, you know, you show up and they're like, well, you need a website. (laughs) So you put one together and then you don't think about it for a few years. And that was kind of a placeholder Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that never got replaced, I guess. So, um, but yeah, the, the basic question is, it's a great know, website. What's that? It's a great website. We copied it from some other website. And then, <laughs> well, that's why yeah, it, lo- it looks really clean for a reason, I guess. Yeah. 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 yeah well, you can thank, um, Cabria Jensen, my lab manager, I think did all the actual work on that. But, um, awesome. yeah. So the, the basic, you know, question is, is what is the, what is the, relationship between the neurobiology so what's actually you know what are the what are the neurons actually doing and how how does that give rise to all of the high order interesting cognitive functions in the brain right mm-hmm. and and you know sort of jokey the way that it's described on the website but it's also you know sort of i think indicative of the fact that we really don't know a lot about the basic kind of principles by which the the firing of the neurons turn into this experience of life that we all mm-hmm. you know enjoy um, that's that's clearly based on the neurobiology, but how you get from, you know, a bunch of neurons that are spiking and you know releasing neurotransmitter at synapses, you know that that we know a lot about. We know you know what causes neurons to spike. We know what you know how they communicate with each other. We know, you know, to certain degrees of of I guess approximation, you know, kind of how groups of neurons kind of work together to to represent information. But how you get from that into um, the kind of, you know, functioning brain that's actually doing all the interesting things the brain does, that's, that's still a real fundamental mystery. So, you know, what the, what the lab, you know, I would, I'd consider it successful if at the end of my career I could describe, you know, a tenth of what, what the kind of core principles are that give rise to cognition or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but we're still pretty far from there, I think. Um, and so more specifically, I guess what we're kind of interested in is what is the relationship between, um, uh, plasticity and between the synapses and the dynamics of activity that are evoked in the brain when things happen, right? So, um, you know, it's it's an it's a complicated system because the dynamics. And what I mean by dynamics is just you know you take a bunch of neurons and you put some information into them, you put some signal into it, and that information propagates through the network based on some combination of the anatomy, so which neurons are connected to which, and you know the the types of neurotransmitters they're releasing and, um, yeah, um, um, you know, factors like that, it, it kind of ripples through the, the network. Well, the synapses themselves change as a function of that activity, right? So mm. there's, there's principles that, that we know some things about that lead, that by which activity leads to changes in synaptic efficacies or synaptic weights, mm. or, you know, just synaptic connections, basically, that, that encode information, but that same plasticity also changes the dynamics. It changes how fast signals ripple through the network. Um, so what I'm really interested in, in is kind of the nature of time in the brain um, and how it is that we represent time um, and specifically how it is that plasticity allows us to learn about temporal relationships. And for the most part right now, we kind of study it at the level of very specific dynamics. So how do, how do evoked, you know, how does evoked activity in the visual cortex, which you guys probably know, but, you know, just the, the first part of the cortex where information comes from the eyes, it goes through a part of the brain called the LGN, and then it gets up into the cortex. And so mm-hmm. what we're interested in is when you look at something, when you initially look at something, that information is, you know, the light hits your eye, it turns into a neural code, goes up into your brain. Um, and when it gets to the cortex, it kind of ripples through that that area that we're studying, V1. Um, and the the sort of dynamics of that or the, the nature of that um, that response um, over time, as you start to experience a particular visual pattern, changes, and 
the cortex basically learns to represent or to predict what it is that it's seen previously mm-hmm. um, in a way that encodes spatial temporal information or, you know, the, the temporal relationship of the patterns that you're looking at and how they relate to each other and allows the cortex to start making predictions basically about what it's going to see. Um, and those predictions are exist on a temporal basis. And so we use that, that system just to try to understand what are the principles by which information is represented and, and through which synaptic plasticity allows the brain to learn about temporal relationships and then use what it learns to make predictions mm-hmm. about what's going to happen in the future. So, which... That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> you know. Oh, well, all in a day's work. Yeah, yeah. so this, this study, is this mainly formed around, like, biophysics or, like, circuitry area more so than, like, like I don't know, strictly biology research? You know, when you look at when you look at the kind of population of people who do neuroscience research... Um, there's clearly a very, you know, there's a lot of people who come from a biological background. Mm. Um, but there's also a lot of people who come from, you know, engineering backgrounds like me or physics backgrounds. Yeah, we've or, noticed that. Yeah. Or, you know, things like that. And the reason for that is because the biology by itself um, doesn't really, or, or studying biology by itself doesn't really give you the tools to analyze, yeah. you mm. know, an information processing machine. Um, and, you know, in, kind of in the same way that you have, you know, a physicist can tell you, you know, a computer chip. He can tell you why it is that electrons move the way they do in the in the uh, you know the chip or the the substrate of the mm. the silicon wafer or whatever, right? But those the the kind of analytical tools or the descriptive tools necessary to describe the physics are not the same as the tools that a computer scientist uses to describe how the computer actually you know does complicated computations and things like that. And it's kind of the same relationship in biology, where you need the biology, you need information about the biology to know you know what the actual substrate is and what the principles are. Um, but the way that you analyze them, particularly, you know, in information theoretical context or in dynamic systems context or things like that, those tools really are mathematical tools that, you know, usually come from people who study math or study engineering mm-hmm. or study physics or something like that. So there's a lot of overlap between biologists and, you know, more mathematically inclined um, um, fields, I guess, in neuroscience, because you really need both. You can't, mm-hmm. You know, biology alone is never going to, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but (laughs) my take is biology alone is never going to be able to um, explain the principles of, you know, how the brain actually works and does the things that it does. Mm. Um, But at the same time, you know, I'm very, I doubt that, that, you know, just mathematical modeling by itself is ever going to explain it either because there's too many, you know, you need the biology to constrain the models that you're building so that you're studying something that's actually related to the biology. So it's interrelated. Yeah, 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 for sure. So there's a lot of uh, kids that are interested in computational neuroscience, like Ian, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and their their primary background is with with a lot of biology based courses. Yeah. So maybe you can speak to that, like, like what's your experience like trying to go into a com- computational field when most of your classes are in in like just basic biology. <laughs> well, unfortunately my own, you know, life history is the inverse, right? So I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a electrical engineer, um, who got into computational neuroscience because, you know, I was taking classes from the kind of computer side of the electrical engineering department and they were talking about artificial neural networks and, and, you know, I took some classes in, um, um, like brain machine interface type of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, from the engineering perspective and that got me interested in the neuroscience, um, and so I got into neuroscience by modeling um, kind of networks of neurons and how they interact together. Um, and, you know, only later sort of really focused on learning the biology side. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't have firsthand experience um, myself about mm-hmm. how, you know, how well a biology um, um, curriculum prepares you to be a computational neuroscience. Um, what I can say is that, you know, my observation of students coming through the biology program typically... I mean, you know, not everybody, but it's a self-selecting group in a lot of ways uh, um, that, you know, have chosen biology, you know, again, this is, this is, um, what's the, what's the way you're saying? This, this is, a, you know, an approximation of best, right? yeah, okay. but, um, um, you know, they, they've chosen biology because they're interested in science or, yeah, or they're yeah. interested in biology, mm-hmm. but not particularly interested in math, right? No, yeah, so yeah. that's, that's not, it's not a coincidence that a lot of the students in biology don't want to take math that's, beyond that's so what it's the minimum necessary mm-hmm. to get into medical school or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and the reality is, 
Um, to do computational neuroscience, you know, you really need math beyond just calculus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if you're a biology student who's interested in, in computational neuroscience, I think, you know, the advice would be you really need to focus on the math and make sure that you take some classes <clears throat> that teach you something about, you know, how you do analysis of dynamic systems, differential equations, yeah. linear algebra, things like that, um, so that you have the tools in your toolkit so that you can start analyzing the, you know, the, the neural systems the way that computational neuroscientists do and knowing how to, you know, make models and, and solve them and, and, you know, avoid pitfalls and things like that. So Yeah, seeing that firsthand as a kid who studies comp- computer science and neuroscience, it's definitely just such a shift because the neuro program, at least for here, is very bio and then, like, some higher-level behavioral yeah. and, cog- yeah. and, like, cog classes. But, like, joining and, like, seeing what actual computational neuroscience can be, it's, it is a lot more, like programming and like data analysis and understanding complex systems and so luckily for me i have that background of like having to take like linear algebra or like differential equations like having to do these problems and having to be like or being able to be comfortable like reading through lines of code or like creating a new network and like running a deep learning simulation like luckily i have that but for kids like no offense encore but you don't have any background in that area Mm -hmm. and if you were like deeply interested in this it would be such a hard learning curve to just jump into it is a hard like i'm i'm in a cognitive neuroscience lab and like it's it's what you described like i came in i was like i'm gonna take two calc courses and be done with math like for my entire life (laughs) but like i went seriously and i went i went to a talk and like it was this it was this mathematician who is like who his his background was primarily like in math and statistics and he was talking about like these very very social behavioral things and like and he was like talking about how he applies math to it and i was like <laughs> like i need to know math like seriously so like i'm, I'm literally learning statistics right now because that's it's so key not only for computational neuroscience but also cognitive neuroscience yeah well you know that's i think that's that's definitely true um i would say that you know the good news is that the, the the field of computational neuroscience or computational biology or you know or behavioral neuroscience with all of the know. above yeah yeah all these things above like there's a lot of different ways you can come at it so you know you you could probably have a pretty successful career if you didn't know much about differential equations but you were really good at like bayesian statistics right mm-hmm. you could apply that knowledge to an entire branch of of you know neuroscience and, and behavioral neuroscience that that I really don't know very much about but you know you could be very successful so you can you know to a certain extent you can pick and choose but but you know the reality is at some point if you're going to do a computational or you want to use a computational approach to anything you need to know something about computation mm-hmm. um and you know there there is you know you can jump in and just start doing like deep learning you know algorithms and implementing them and learning how to mm-hmm. do that um and and you know get things to work and, and learn a lot and you know do some interesting stuff with that um but <clears throat> to to really kind of i think advance you know at some point you're going to kind of bump up to the point where you can't find any examples of how to do it online right yeah. and all you have is is you know kind of and you need to be able to do some independent analysis and like understand what the the relationship between the different parts of the system are and and you know at some point you're going to run into that so um so yeah if you know it if you really want to, if you really want to be a computational neuroscientist, you, you have to know something about computation. That's just, that's just the, the way it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Just, just switching gears a bit. I mean, we're getting a little technical here. I'd like to, yeah. to bring it back yeah, just a course. little bit. Sure. Um, something that a lot of people would would like to know about is the how to hero story. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how that got started, you know, and how that's evolved, like from when you started it to now. Uh, <laughs> so the, the short answer is that is something that I did, uh, to keep my wife happy. <laughs> it's a favorite of my wife. Um, okay. so, um, when we, so when I, when we lived in Austin, she was in, um, um, the food industry and okay. started out working at a high end sushi restaurant, like as a bar backer, you know, busboy basically and doing that kind of work. Um, but by the time we left, she was, you know, an assistant pastry chef there and was doing all sorts of fun things like that. So we got up to Boston um, from, from Austin, Texas, where we came from. And, um, um, she kind of got into the food industry here as well when I was doing my postdoc over at MIT. Um, and, and, uh, hooked up with that, that group, the how to heroes group. 
and got hired as a photographer because what what that website was was um well honestly i don't exactly know what it was <laughs> my understanding of it though is that it was supposed to be a website where they were going to go around and um and interview you know some mixture of professional chefs and home chefs and like have examples of how to cook things right um and there was I don't know exactly what their original goal was, but when we showed up and she started working for them and her job was they would go to, you know, different restaurants and, and film the chef making stuff and take pictures of the food and, and, you know, put it together into those videos that you see online. Well, when we showed up, they were, they were pushing kind of, you know, for content. Um, and so she asked me if I would do some cooking videos just <laughs> for content. content. I said, yeah, yeah, why not? Um, so, so that was it. So, you know, it was just like they showed up and, you know, did a couple of couple of recipes with me. One of them was a, a chili recipe that we had. Austin chili. Yeah, Austin chili, which, <laughs> to be honest, is one of the best things I've ever done in my life. It's, it's really good. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever. Well, I know that some of the people at How to Heroes like they reported back that they started making it, and you know, really, yeah. And in fact, um, is it an original recipe? Grandma's, yeah, it's original. Grandma's Austin. No, chili? no, no, it's 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 mine and my wife's. Like we, oh, okay. we made it up in when we lived nice. in Austin. It was kind That's of a awesome. mixture because we were making mole, which is a Mexican beautiful mm. food and and uh oh, and you know growing up in texas there's a lot of chili just generally um so we kind of mixed some of the flavors from the mole stuff with some of the you know regular chili um and then i i had lived in um in dayton ohio as a kid and they make something called cincinnati chili which skyline yeah, yeah exactly and um so we had i had grown up eating cincinnati three-way chili that yeah. my mom made um so it was like a mixture of those things so texas chili plus Cincinnati chili, which is quite a bit different, and then with some of the mole flavors. Anyway, so we we invented this recipe, if you want to call it that, um, and have been making it ever since. Um, so they asked me to do that, and I said sure. And then they really liked it, and then they wanted to do another one, and so I did the uh, the gooey butter cake, which is a St. Louis specialty, and that's where my mom's family's from. So yeah, um, yeah. So that was it. So you know, we just did, did a couple of recipes, and then it went online. And, I kind of figured I would never hear about it or anything it's again. But, oh, it's there forever. Yeah, yeah. no, apparently it is. Um, the, <laughs> the company doesn't exist anymore. Like, oh, really? They, How to Heroes doesn't exist anymore, no, but for whatever reason, the, the videos are still online. And yeah, and it's funny because we had an interview with this guy named Jesse Goldberg, who um, his wife also, he was a postdoc at MIT, mm. and his wife also worked at um, How to Heroes. I forget what she did for them, but... Um, um, so it's like everybody had their husband. <laughs> well, yeah, I think he actually did do some cooking videos, but he came and gave <laughs> okay. a talk at BU like last year. And, you know, when he saw me, the first thing he's like, oh, we made Austin chili last week. <laughs> so I know at least he's still making it. And, yeah. and some of the other people at How To Heroes, I guess, still make it. But yeah. <laughs> So you, cons- you consider yourself quite the cook at home. I mean, you know, when you go to graduate school, so <laughs> you, you have a lot of time and not a lot of money, right? Okay. Um, or maybe not a lot of time, but you don't have a lot of money. So That's for sure. How much mm-hmm. time you have depends, but um, how much money you have is unless you come from, you know, money in your background, you don't have a lot of money because they don't pay you much and, you know, that sort of thing. So we were, you know, in our 20s and in, in, in 30s, you know, late 20s, early 30s in Austin, Maria, my wife, was working for, you know, in the in, in the food industry and doing a lot of cooking and stuff with that. Um, and, you know, you kind of realize, or anyways, we realized that we could make food that was just as good as what you could buy at a really fancy restaurant. And we mm-hmm. could do it for, you know, a tenth of the price at home. And it was fun to do together. It was something to do. So, you know, we started cooking kind of, you know, just because of that. Um, and, um, you know, so... I mean, I'm an okay cook. Like, I'm not, you know. <laughs> Nothing bad. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm okay, but, like, it's it's not, don't, it's okay. it's not like my no, identity. Don't, don't it's not like my self-identity or anything. But, it's yeah, it's super practical. <laughs> and, I mean, we still cook all the time, you know. And and don't go out to dinner even, you know, now that I guess we could afford it. Of course, now we have little kids, and that makes it mm-hmm. complicated in different ways. But, um, um, but yeah, you know, we, it's it's fun. It's it's enjoyable, you know. Would would you consider chili your go-to, or do you have something else when you just get home after a long day? No, honestly, the go-to is just like um, chili. Chili takes a fair amount of time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yes. really, the go-to is like leftovers, and you make fried rice out of it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever you have, you know, whatever vegetables from the night before, you throw them in the the pot and saute them, and then you know dump Ew. some rice and some eggs and whatever, and do that. That's that's easy. It takes like ten minutes, and it's really good. So yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I I like to know a little bit more about like the story of Mark Bear's lab. Yeah. How did that happen? And like, how did that whole two year period unfold? You described it. I saw you described it in an interview as a pressure cooker environment. 
Did I? <laughs> so, is it, so that is definitely how people think about MIT. Um, yeah. I would say that that is not really my experience with Mark's lab. Interesting. Um, okay. So this was an MIT lab. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So Mark Bear is a is a professor at MIT in the neuroscience um, uh, department, and you know, very well known in the field, mm-hmm. um, very successful. He was Howard Hughes, medical investigator. He wrote our textbook. Wrote our, he wrote our textbook. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. He wrote our textbook. Yeah, that we're using the Bear and Connors and Paradiso. They were all uh, professors together at Brown when they started, and. And, you know, neuroscience is a fairly new, mm-hmm. modern neuroscience is a fairly new subject. And, and when they started teaching kind of a principles of neuroscience class, there was no textbook. And so they wrote one, you know, they, they, they made their class and then they wrote the textbook based on what they were teaching, mm-hmm. I think is how it happened. At what point in your career do you just decide to write a textbook? I feel like, is it like, is yeah. it like some, some point where you're like, yeah, now's the time. Now's the time to write like a 500 page instruction. I, I think it probably varies quite a bit from person to person. You know, I think my, my impression, and, you know, you'd have to ask Mark to know for sure, but my impression is um, that, you know, they kind of did it because they had to, because they, oh, were, okay. teaching a, they mm-hmm. were teaching a class and the textbook didn't really exist for the undergraduate, you know, at the undergraduate level of description. There was, you know, the Candell book, which is old, know, this huge, like, four-inch <laughs> thick, you know, mm-hmm. Bible of everything we know about neuroscience. Um, but it's really, that's, you know, a pretty intimidating book, even for a graduate student. Mm. It, that was my first neuroscience textbook, and it was fairly intimidating for a graduate student. Um, and to take that and drop it in, you know, the backpack of a sophomore <laughs> is, <laughs> is you know, maybe not the best um, place to start. So so they they developed a curriculum to teach principles of neuroscience and then built from that curriculum, you know, wrote the textbook because they were basically doing it anyways to develop their class. Um so that that was my impression. They chose to do it because of that. I, I think other people, you know, do it for different reasons at different points in their career. But that was that was my impression. Interesting. Yeah. Man, so, so what did you do? What did you do in specific at Mark Bear's lab? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So yeah. get back to Mark <laughs> Bear's lab. So how did I end up there? Well, so my computational you know modeling um, that I did as a as a dissertation for my PhD mm-hmm. was modeling some work that came out of his lab. Um, so a guy named Marshall Schuler, who's now at um, Hopkins. Um, had done some recordings where they were pairing visual stimulation with water reward in rats, and they were finding these interesting temporal um, um, kind of representations that were forming in V1. Mm-hmm. I was interested in time. I was working in this computational lab with a guy named Harrell Cheval, uh, who had known Mark at Brown because Harrell had been working with Leon Cooper, who's, who's a physicist at Brown, and that's where, that's where Harrell came from. So he had known Mark at Brown. Um, they'd done some collaboration together on um, some plasticity modeling and, um, you know, about the time that, that Marshall published out of Mark's lab, that paper was right when I was looking for a dissertation topic. I was interested in it, so I started doing some modeling on it. Um, and through that, I was able to come up and spend, I think it was about a month, um, at MIT one summer, uh, you know, meeting Marshall and seeing how he was doing the experiments and doing that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I met Mark um, through that. And then when I was getting ready to graduate, I didn't really have any long-term plan, or I didn't really have any plans you know, almost full stop. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and I was, you know, kind of on the, trying to make the decisions whether I wanted to stay in academic science, which was never my aspiration. Um, it wasn't, you know, I never wanted to be a professor. It just kind of worked out this way. Mm. Um, but, you know, so I was kind of at this inflection point where the question is, do I want to go back into industry and kind of do the stuff that I'd started doing before I went to get my PhD? Mm. Or did I want to stay in neuroscience? Um, and I decided I wanted to stay in neuroscience, but um, kind of with the caveat that, you know, when I sort of reflected on this, the work I'd been doing in my dissertation, um, that I really didn't think that I knew enough biology basically to be doing modeling of neural processes that would actually be telling us anything about the brain. So, I mean, I could have been doing like artificial neural networks or something like that, I guess, yeah. where you don't need to know anything about, the, you know, you just need something that works. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, but that, by that point, I was really interested in the, in the neuroscience kind of questions and the questions about the brain as a biological system. And that's what I wanted to, to study. So I really kind of thought, well, if I'm going to stick with this, you know, I don't want to give up the computational approach because I think it's useful and, and um, I like it. Um, but I, you know, kind of decided I really need to learn something a lot more about the biology and about, you know, what it is that's actually happening. Um, so, you know, decided that I needed to do a, a postdoc that was experimental so that I knew how that kind of stuff worked. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I called Mark, um, like literally on the phone, which 
<laughs> you guys have never probably seen one, but it's this thing with buttons and you push it and it dials a number yeah, yeah. and then you talk to people. There's no okay, texting okay. or anything, right? Sounds so cool. oh, okay. anyways, <laughs> so I dialed Mark's number um, and he answered the phone and that I now know is a very fortuitous event because he never answers his phone. You know, he's not there or the, the secretary picks up or something, but he just happened to answer the phone like when I called and I was, you know, like, hey, Mark, you remember me? We met a couple of years ago briefly. <laughs> um, I just, you know, I've been working with Rel. I just finished my dissertation. I'm interested in doing a postdoc and my memory of it, he was like, oh, I thought you were going to go back to Boeing or whatever you'd been doing before. And I was like, well, you know, it's still an option, but but no, I'd, I'd rather do the neuroscience. He's like, okay, great. Well, just call Suzanne, who is his, his you know, secretary, and she'll set it up. And that was it. So, <laughs> so like that was, you know, the extent of the conversation. And then, you know, I moved up to, to MIT and started doing experiments. You know? mm. um, but his lab is, is you know... I said it's not a pressure cooker. So MIT is is known for being a very high pressure place, um, yeah. and I think a lot of people experience that. Um, Mark's lab was was relatively laid back, um, and you know, for me, I thought it was a, a great fit because he had it was a combination of him having you know plenty of resources to do. I mean, not whatever you wanted to, but you know, pretty close to it. And you didn't have to worry about you know if you were gonna if you needed to spend a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars to get a piece of equipment or something like that, like it wasn't really, you know, something that you had to worry about too much. And so there was a lot of resources and Mark was hands off enough to kind of give me um, a lot of freedom to explore and, and, you know, learn how to do the experiment without him breathing down my neck or anything like that. Um, And so, and for me that worked great. Um, So, you know, I, I found it hands down to be an enjoyable place to be and, a great experience working in Mark's lab. And I really, you know, really liked it and really appreciate the opportunities he gave me. Um, but, you know, my, my experience there is maybe different from some other people's. That's fair. Um, Cause you know, if, if, if you're someone who doesn't, you know, it's easy. I would say in Mark's lab, it's easy if you show up and you know, you're not somebody or you're somebody who, who wants a little bit more structure to the experiment. Um, you know, you would have a different experience there. If you went to a different lab at MIT with a more hands-on person and you were more kind of my temperament, you would have a very different experience. So, you know, it, it was a great fit for me personally. And, and yeah, so anyway, so that's what I did. So I was there for five years, I think, all told, um, before I came to BU and, and was doing experiments pretty much the whole time. Um, a little bit of computational work, but mainly mainly experimental stuff. Mm. And if you could put yourself back in that headspace, how would you compare that to like your current level of being like a PI. <laughs> yeah, it's different. Um, so the great thing about being a postdoc is that you do nothing but science, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. So you're doing the experiments yourself, um, and, you know, that's fun. It's, if, you, if you like being a scientist and you like doing that, it's fun. You have time to read the papers. You, you know, in a, in a city like Boston, you have incredible people everywhere that are doing incredible work, and you can talk to them and, you know, and you can read the papers and you can debate things with them and, you know, have this dialogue. And so it's just great. So being a postdoc is, is absolutely great in that respect. Um, the downside to being a postdoc is that not quite as bad as being a graduate student, but you don't get paid a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. but but even more, I think, than that is that it's it's not a professional position in the sense that, you know, you can keep doing it forever. Um, in fact, you know, most places they have a time limit for how long you can be technically called a postdoc. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at the end of that, if you get a job as a professor, great. If you go into industry, great or something like that. But there's not it's not a it's not like a, a, a career yet. It's it's more like a stepping stone to the career mm-hmm. in the same way that, a, you know, a PhD is a stepping stone to the career, too. Um, and so, you know, that aspect of being a postdoc is not great. And especially, you know, if you've done I think my I think my PhD was like five years. But before I went back to do that, I've been working for five years. So, you know, I was getting to the point in my life where. Um, maybe in my second year of postdoc, I had a kid, um, you know, and, and you start realizing like, oh, well, <laughs> you know, I need to get a pay job, for them yeah. to go to college someday, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> this sort of stuff and buy a house or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and being a postdoc is not great for that. So, um, transitioning to being a PI or being a professor is, you know, it's, it's in certain, in, in the sense of doing the science yourself, um, I think for a lot of people, it's kind of a step back because you have a lot, of, a lot more responsibilities to keep you out of the lab, right? Mm-hmm. You have to yeah. teach classes. That takes time. You have to advise undergraduates. That takes time. You have to be on committees to, you know, interview potential colleagues and you know, all these things that you don't have to do as a postdoc. Um, Sit down for a podcast. 
you sit down for a podcast. I mean, that's a pleasure. Like, that's, not a, oh, thank, that's not a burden. That's, but um, <laughs> so so it's 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 a very different kind of mix of responsibilities. Um, you know, all told, being a being a professor is much better. You get paid better. You have more. You know, you have more control over what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's it's fun. It's it's you know, mm-hmm. it's a good job. It really is. Um, so you kind of give up something when you stop being the, the postdoc and you transition, but you gain a lot more, I think, than you give up. Yeah. Um, but it's different. It's, it's different challenges. And, and, you know, I don't know how many people I've had this conversation with that, that one of the weird things about academia is that every, every time you kind of, you know, you, you get trained to do something and then you succeed at that thing you were trained to do. And then you transition into a new thing. And all of a sudden, whatever it is that you were just trained to do that got you the position that you're in now is not what you need to know to do the thing that you're doing now, right? <laughs> so, so no one teaches you as a postdoc, like, how do you manage a budget for a lab? You know, yeah. That sort of thing. And, okay. and how do you, you know, all, all, the other, all the other parts that go into it. Um, you know, that's not what you were doing before. And all of a sudden, that's what you have to do. So, so it's a different, it's a, it's a change and it's different. But, but, you know, it's fun. And it's, you know, I don't know that I would have been happy. Like, five years was a great amount of time for me doing the doing all the work myself, you know, if I'd been doing that 10, 15, 20 years, I don't know that I still would have been happy. So it's, it's nice to mm. always kind of be growing and having new opportunities. So, so it sounds like this whole like career path, especially with science is very yeah. like stepwise. It's like you're doing yeah. a step to get to the next step. Knowing that, like what kind of advice would you give yourself when you started like this whole yeah. stepwise process? Well, I mean, so it is to a certain extent, right? I don't know that that's too different in academia, academia than it is in any other career, right? You're that's always fair. kind of advancing mm-hmm. and, and um, or hoping to, or hoping to, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> As they slowly weed you out, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I don't know how different it is in academia um, than it is in, in other things, but you know, there there is one aspect of academia that I think is a bit unique, and that is that um, that there's a great funneling just in terms of numbers. You know, there's a lot of people that get bachelor's degrees, mm-hmm. a smaller number, but still a lot of people who get PhDs, um, smaller, but still a big number of people who do postdocs. And then all of a sudden there's not that many professorships. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's a very real aspect of randomness, I think, to the transition from being a postdoc into being a professor and kind of making that jump um, and so the, the advice that, you know, I give to people when they ask me about this, like, you know, graduate students, um, um, and sort of the advice that, you know, I, I thought about my, for myself was you need to be realistic about it and you need to realize that it's not enough to be w- with certain exceptions. There are some people that, you know, they just are world beaters, right? And though they're going to, they're going to get the position mm-hmm. regardless of when they finish their PhD because they mm-hmm. did something amazing. Right. But for most of us, um, the the reality is, you know, to get a to get a professorship, it's not enough to do really good science. It's not enough to be, you know, one of the one of the people in the world who knows the most about whatever subject it is that you study. You also have to be within some, you know, two, three, four year window, something like that, kind of in the job market at a time when there are positions where somebody's trying to hire somebody who does whatever it is that you're really good at, okay, right? And, th- and that's a moving target, and there's a lot of um, kind of randomness to that. So, you know, I, I have a, a colleague who's a good friend of mine who is, you know, an f- absolutely fantastic um, um, biologist uh, who does, um, you know, cellular molecular biology, you know, absolutely fantastic at it, and, and is really really good at it and was you know employing that in neuroscience um but when she was at the point in her career where you know her papers were published and um you know she was coming up on that kind of the period in the postdoc where you're competitive just based on how long you've been there um people weren't hiring for the type of work that she was doing and Mm -hmm. you know a few years before they had been but everybody hired for that stuff and all of a sudden they didn't need anymore because they just hired a bunch of them and now you know everybody wanted to hire for people who were doing optogenetics or whatever kind of the hot thing was, right? So, so my, my advice then is you have to recognize that you have to perform to a certain level to be kind of in the conversation. But you also have to recognize that even if you're in the conversation, there's not anything that you can do that's going to guarantee that you're going to be successful. Um, and so, you know, throughout the process, I think it really is a good idea to kind of maintain a, a plan B and, you know, a realistic plan B that like, mm-hmm. well... 
you know, I'm going to give it a few years and see if science is panning out. Mm. And if it's not, I'm also going to be going to the, you know, the meet and greet networking events within the biotechnology community that they hold at, you know, whatever hotel here in town, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, once like biotech Tuesday or whatever it is mm-hmm. and, and meeting people in the industry so that, you know, if in a couple of years from now, you know, when you start your postdoc or whatever, in a couple of years from now, if, you know, for whatever reason, through your own, you know, through forces that are beyond your own control, you don't feel like you're at a position where you're realistically going to be getting a job in the next few years. You're not, you know, just forced to kind of grin and bear it, that you mm-hmm. can go out and find another career path that is going to be fulfilling and, you know, and whatever. So that that's kind of my advice is you have to recognize that there there is a certain degree of stochasticity to the process and there's nothing you can do about that. Um, you know, because the reality is, you know, the building that I was in at MIT, there was hundreds of postdocs in there and there mm-hmm. aren't hundreds of professorship positions that yeah. come open every year. And that was just one institute at one university in Boston, you know, and, <laughs> and forget about the rest of the world. So, so, you know, you just need to, you need to kind of think about what it is you're doing and be realistic about what the prospects are. And, you know, for your own sake, um, prepare alternate paths if the, if the primary mm-hmm. goal doesn't pan out. So. so what was, what was your plan B? Oh, my plan B. Um, so, I mean, I had worked for Boeing and, um, when I started going, so they had a, um, a educational program where they would pay you or they would pay for your education if you were getting advanced degrees when you worked for them. So within, I don't know, a year maybe of graduating my undergraduate, I'd gone to work for them immediately. Um, like, you know, within weeks of graduating, like, I think it was like the next week I started. Um, uh, and within about a year after I'd been there, um, I applied to a master's program at Rice, which was the university I went to in Houston as an undergraduate. Uh, and, and really not because I had any, you know, aspirations towards, um, um, uh, academia or anything like that, but just because it was something to do, it was a benefit that the program was offering. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and, and honestly, it was easy as a graduate of their engineering program to get into the master's program. Cause you just had to, yeah. you basically just had to have a, a GPA that was above some level and they would let you in. Right. So I didn't have to like think about it or take tests or apply. I mean, you did, but it wasn't like a, it was more pro forma. It was my impression. So anyway, mm-hmm. so I did that. Um, um, and then when I was done with that, you know, I, kind of enjoyed it and decided to apply for, well, there's a whole story behind it, but decided to apply for a PhD program. And I got into that. Um, but I kept working for Boeing for a couple of years, uh, remotely, you know, so I lived in Austin cause I was at UT Austin. My, my job was in Houston and Clear Lake, which is where NASA Johnson space center is kind of outside of Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I was working still for them remotely. I would drive down there, you know, occasionally on the weekends and things like that, or, over the summer, um, you know, go down there and spend some time in the, in the weeks. But during the semester, I was, you know, kind of working on a reduced schedule remotely on a computer. Um, and then in a certain point when I, in fact, when I got into a lab where they were paying me to do research, I stopped doing that, but I went on to a formal leave of absence. So I still was a Boeing employee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I maintained that up until I think until I got the position at MIT as my memory. And then I, you know, said, well, I'm not coming back. So I terminated it. But that was always, that was always kind of the first plan B. It was just going back okay. to doing what I had done before um, or something similar, you know, in, in that kind of industry. Um, and then when I got to MIT, I was kind of, you know, investigating other options. And at, at the point at which I was applying for academic jobs here, I had a, had an offer from, um, gosh, I might get the details wrong. It was, um, it was to be like the DARPA rep for neural technologies or something like that, or, or the, the, liaison to the DARPA rep for neural technologies, but it was with one of the um, consulting companies um, who does a lot of that work. Uh, I forget which one it was, Booz Allen or somebody. I think mm-hmm. it was Booz Allen actually. Yeah. So, you know, I had, a, I had, I was, I was talking to people, I was doing interviews and had a job offer totally outside of academia, you know, in a related subject, which was neural technologies yeah. applied to, to government work. But, um, you know, so I, I, I just, I maintained contacts and I kept, you know, that option open until, until I had the offer from BU. So, Interesting. So there is a you, you transition from Boeing into graduate school. Yeah. I mean, Boeing is this prestigious organization. Less so in the last year. Less so. Than last <laughs> yeah, but sure. We'll, we'll keep. We'll go. We'll go with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and you coming out of uh, undergrad, and or you coming out of a master's, and you're and you have uh, and you're at Boeing. Yeah. So is there something in specific, working at Boeing that made you say? this is not what I want to do for the next five, 10 years of my life. And, and that's, and that was the impetus for you going to graduate school. I mean, 
Yes, probably. Um, you know, I, I, I was a, so my title was like hardware software engineer or something like that. Right. And the program that I was staffed on was the international space station. So this was starting in 99, which is when they were, they first started launching <laughs> international. Wait, space. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> international space station. Yeah. So they, you know, the thing that's up in space. So you're up there. Yeah. Just, no. well, did you like, did you build that? I helped them build it yeah that's really cool that yeah is. no it was, it was neat right so <laughs> that's so cool they hired me actually um there had been i had done a summer internship with a company actually outside of boston called mitre okay um and they it was one of those weird internships where they just gave me the satellite phone essentially called it iridium phone which was they had launched a constellation of these satellites and okay. they were low earth orbit and there's a bunch of them and the phone looked like a big um uh, you know, early first generation cell phone. It's like this big bricky looking thing. Yeah, it's yeah, huge. Yeah. It looked like a breadstick from the garlic, uh, from the Olive Garden. That's okay, what the okay. antenna looked unlimited, like. Unlimited, unlimited. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what the thing looked like. So it was this huge thing. And they were they were doing an assessment of these phones for military applications or, or government applications. The idea being that mm-hmm. like, you know, something, there's some sort of disaster in some country in Eastern Europe and all the phone lines are down, you know, all the electricity is off. If we were to drop in a bunch of government workers or soldiers or whoever it is and give them a bunch of these Iridium phones, would it work? Would it give, provide communications, you know, things like that? So that was kind of what they were doing. And they, you know, my role was they just gave me one of these things and I would like wander around and call my friends and you know, try <laughs> it from Boston and then try it from somewhere else, you know, and, and do that sort of thing. But, but as it relates to, to the the Boeing job, so that was on my resume that I had worked on this Iridium project yeah. for MITRE as an intern, and they were they were they hired me actually to work on something related to that. I never found out what because a couple of days before I was supposed to start, they called and they said that program like we've lost the contract and so it doesn't exist anymore. Okay. So you can still come work for Boeing, but you'd have to be on the space station project at NASA. Oh, yeah. said, okay. okay. That was the condition, and you're yeah, like, yeah. And you're like, hmm, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a different time, right? So there, it was a good economy. It was easy to get jobs, <laughs> and um, and they like <laughs> my memories. I didn't even really apply for this job. Like, I had gone to a career fair and just like you know dropped an applica- or a, a, a mm-hmm. resume or something, and they had they'd seen Iridium, which was the name of that satellite constellation on it, and so they called me because of that. Um, and so like it was a very easy thing like I didn't have to think about it I didn't have to you know interview <laughs> I mean I had to interview but it wasn't like I wasn't like doing a job search I was just you know getting ready to graduate Boeing called and offered me a job and I said yeah great that sounds perfect um and then they switched me over to the to the space station program um so anyway so it was it was exciting right because you get there and this was early days when they had launched um a couple of the Russian pieces and they were getting and they had launched a couple of the American pieces and they were getting ready to launch the lab which was kind of the core of the American Mm-hmm. Um, part and it's an interesting engineering challenge because the thing was built, you know, spread across the world in different parts of the world um, over you know fifteen twenty years or something like that. So the parts that were you know when I started working there, they had already launched parts um, that had been built you know five ten years earlier, whenever they had built them, and they were still for you know parts that were going to come up a few years later. They were still in the design phases for it, and so they never. It wasn't like, you know, they ever put the thing together to make sure it worked. They started launching pieces, and then they had to build new pieces to, to go up and, and make sure it would work. So that was, that was my job, is, um, is we had a bunch of hardware. They call it, like, flight equivalency units, um, where it would be, you know, they would have a computer they'd put in the space station. They'd have the exact same computer. They'd give us one of those computers. And then we'd have a simulator that would simulate all of the parts of the space station that we didn't have in the lab um, with some mixture of the actual hardware, you know, like other other versions of the hardware that we would put it all together in this big um, um, simulated environment and then run basically end-to-end software and hardware integration tests to make sure that the new components that they were building and the new software they were building would do what it was supposed to do with the parts that were already on orbit. Um, and sometimes that meant doing things in simulation, which is what we're doing in Houston. Sometimes it would mean, you know, they would give me like a computer and put me on an airplane and send me to Japan and I would hook it up to their part of the space station and make sure that it was doing what it was supposed to do. So that stuff was really cool. Like that was fun. Yeah, yeah. I still, I still don't understand why you don't want to do it. You just oh, been well, because, because like the part of the job that was really fun was the travel and, you know, the, the kind of gee whizness of working on space hardware and like that sort of thing. <laughs> right? like, like that was really fun. Um, but the, the technical challenges that, that I was working on, like the, the actual – you know, engineering part wasn't the most exciting for me, you know, personally, like I just didn't find it super fulfilling because, you know, at the end of the day, like it was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of paperwork where it was like, here's a giant two inch thick, you know, book Mm -hmm. of requirements 
for one piece of hardware. Here's a giant two-inch thick piece of requirements for another piece of hardware. Now write a test that goes through and makes sure that all these requirements are being met by the software or by the hardware, and then sit there and you know run this test to make sure it was actually doing what it was supposed to be doing. And that part of it was, you know, the kind of technical challenges of it I didn't really find to be super fulfilling. Um, and you know, I don't know. I was still young. Like I didn't have family. I mean, I had a wife, but I didn't have kids, you know, so I didn't have to worry about it. And so when, you know, I kind of stumbled my way, like honestly, just kind of stumbled my way into graduate school, um, okay. at least the postdoc, or the, the, the PhD rather. Um, I wasn't planning to do it. Like I said, I had no aspiration to be uh, uh, an academic, but, you know, honestly, the story, the, the, the truth is I was, uh, I had just finished my master's um, and that was done and I wasn't going to go back and do that. Um, and I had read something saying that they were going to change the GRE, which is the gravi- you know, the, the, gradu- the, the test you have to take, apply to graduate school. And they were going to change it and get rid of the section that was called like, I don't remember exactly what it was called. It was called like the quantitative system or, or there, there was the, you know, the language, the verbal section, the quantitative. And then there was like this qualitative thing that was more like logic puzzles and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And they were going to change it and somehow like kind of get rid of that section and replace it with an essay. I was like, well, I don't want to do that. Like <laughs> th- this sounds more like something that I would enjoy doing. Um, and, and I, so I read that like the last offering of the current form of the test was going to be in like two weeks or something. I was like, well, I'll just take it and see what happens. <laughs> and so I took it. And then the, like the day or something before I had taken it, I had gone to dinner with um, a computer science professor at um, Rice because my wife and I were, Associates, which meant we'd go back every once in a while and like have dinner with you know the current class of kids. Um, and I was talking with one of the other associates who was in the computer science department. I was like, you know, I'm about to take this GRE thing. Like, do you guys even care about that? Does anyone look at it? And he's like, no, we we just pretty much ignore it as long as you get <laughs> yeah. above like a certain you know level, right? Yeah, you can't totally bomb it, but we basically ignore it with the exception of this quantitative section, which we actually <laughs> think is useful. If people do really well on that, we we notice that. Okay. And I said, okay. And then I went and took it and I got an 800 on it with like a perfect score on that section. And I was like, oh, well, I'll apply for PhD programs because they just told me that that's the thing they care about. Exactly. You know? And so I just like, you know, that was, that was the amount of thought that went into it. So, you know, you take the tests on a computer, you have to tell it what schools you want to send it to. And I sent it to some schools and I got into UT Austin. Um, and, you know, and at that point I had been doing the Boeing thing for a while. You know, I had, I had done remote postings in Japan and Italy um, and so wasn't really, you know, I was kind of, it's not that I was done with traveling, but you know, I was, I was happy to be staying back in America for a little bit. Um, I was a little bit bored with the kind of technical aspects of the work. And all of a sudden I had this opportunity to go to Austin, which is, you know, a very fun place to live. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, the opportunity to be a PhD student in electrical engineering department. I said, well, that sounds like more fun than what I'm doing. So I did mm-hmm. it. Um, but that was, that was, you know, it wasn't, there was no grand plan at that point in terms of doing anything, you know, with that degree. It was just sort of, I was going to go do it. And I didn't even know what I was going to study. I didn't know I was going to be doing neuroscience at all. Um, cause my master's was just like wireless stuff, you know, mm-hmm. how cell phones talk to each other and things like that. Um, so I, you know, my plan was, okay, let's move to Austin, you know, and I'm going to take whatever classes sound interesting. I'm going to take them. And whatever I think is the most interesting intellectually, that's what I'll pursue for my research. And then we'll see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, I'll just go back to Boeing. Right. So, yeah, yeah. so that was how it worked out. And that's what got me into neuroscience because that's when I took introduction to computational neuroscience um, with Harel Cheval, who's the guy I ended up working with, mm-hmm. um, and a class called Introduction to Neuroprosthetic Design or something like that, which also um, taught you a lot about kind of the <laughs> neural system. Um, and so I just kind of got hooked into and, and then I also took a class on on machine learning or something that, that covered neural networks. Um, mm. and I just, I got hooked into it and, you know, really liked it. And so then I, you know, went from there and that's how I got, you know, started doing the research and how I met Mark through the modeling of his data and then how I ended up in MIT. And that's, you know, how I ended up here. So mm. awesome. So we're getting a little up there on time. I just yeah. want to ask one more question. Sure. Um, if you had a billboard on ComAv <laughs> with a word or a phrase, what would you put on it? I don't know. Um, Who gives them the power to do this? <laughs> I don't, well, I see I those know. billboards, right? It's like yeah. a picture of some kid's face. It's like right next to this. this, this oh, the one sign. next to the Prudential? Is that what you're talking no, about? No, no, there's a bunch of them. Like, as you walk down, there's like little flyers for BU or something. And it's like a picture of a student and it says like, I, you know. <laughs> Imagination. Yeah, or yeah. something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of in my mind what I'm assuming. Like, I, yeah, honestly, I'm not. Any phrase, something that you want to convey to a the world. A life's motto. <laughs> a life, what's, yeah, what's a life motto? 
I should have worked for Boeing. I should have gone to work for artificial intelligence. This was, you know, when I was doing, like, when I was taking those classes before deep learning took off. Yeah. And now, like, all the people who do that sort of stuff, you know, get paid boot yeah. bucks to work for Google. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a life lesson. Should have done that. But. I regret everything. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really have any life mottos, you know. Just go with the flow? I mean. Is that the, is that the life motto? Well, I mean, hey. I don't think that, I mean, to a certain extent, like, don't, don't worry about it too much, right? <laughs> don't don't stress too much. But like, I don't know that. And as I look back on my career, I haven't really gone with the flow. <laughs> you know, so I can't really. I don't think I'd really advocate that. I guess. Yeah. But, well, uh, sometimes no motto is a good motto. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Sorry. It's blank. Oh, don't worry. The billboard's blank. It's okay. Yeah. Oh, it it means it's something. It's just it's a picture deep. of me. I mean, I think that says it all. <laughs> you and your chili. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, try the chili and then a link to the recipe. Awesome. Beautiful. Be yeah, well, thank you for uh, opening up. Tell us about your story and everything. Yeah, of course. It was great to hear. Of course. It was fun. Yeah. So let me ask you guys before we, how did you guys end up doing this podcast? What's the story with that? Oh. oh. You want me to tell it? You want to tell it? Encore, you take it. Okay. So last, some, last year, uh, at the end, Ian kind of like talked to me about starting a podcast. And he's like, hey, like, yeah, like, I think we would. I think we could make a good podcast. We got a little dynamic going on, mm-hmm. um, and like I think it was it was this uh, it was fall this semester. I was like, I hit him up and I said, "Hey, let's make it happen." And it was like, and it was like, "Oh, okay, we're doing this." And like, yeah. and it so we like literally we got, was like a few weeks from like, "Hey, you want to do it?" To like, we have an interview like on Sunday. Yeah, like, yeah, can yeah. you be here? Like, we we talked to. Um, Gabrogi, uh, or the first person that we interviewed, and he kind of like helped us. He was a big help. Yeah, yeah, he helped us out. He gave us our first interview. Um, so how many and, listeners do you have at this point? Like, are you on Apple? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we're on Apple and Spotify. I believe this morning we hit ninety uh, starts. So like Not people a, who click on it, but okay. like full listens, I think we hit like sixty or something. Okay, which is you know well, that's great. The, it's the, a great the, start. The billboard should be like a link to the podcast. To yeah, drum up. yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, we'll, put a, we'll put a massive QR code next to, yeah. Yeah. Next to your face. Exactly. <laughs> That'll be our advertisements for the future. Oh, can we, yeah, can we have you sign a licensing so we can just put your face everywhere? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Sign anything. All right, well, thanks for talking to us today. Sure, thank you guys. Thanks, guys, for listening. Take care.